0: listeners. I'm Libby Hawker, your new co-host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Joining me today is one of my favorite writers in the genre, Kate Quinn, the author of, among other wonderful historical tales, The Serpent and the Pearl, the first in a two-part series about the rise of the Borgias in Renaissance Rome. Kate's previous three novels were also set in Rome, but farther back in history. The Serpent and the Pearl is her first to delve into the glittering world of the Renaissance and its fascinating, dangerous politics. The Serpent and the Pearl takes the reader on a tense journey of gradually unfolding secrets, and these secrets are kept by some of the most unforgettable characters you'll find in all of historical fiction. We meet the first of those characters, a cook named Carmelina Mangano, and get a hint of the secret she struggles to keep when the story opens. When I first came to Rome, I had nothing to my name but a tattered bundle of recipes and a mummified hand. One was my shame, and the other, with a little luck, was my future. Santa Marta, don't fail me now, I murmured, patting the lumpy little bundle under my skirt, and knocked. I had to knock four times before the door yanked open, and a serving woman with a face like an angry walnut appeared. Yes, she said shortly, looking me up and down. I might be tall, long-faced, and plain at best, and I certainly did not look my best that morning. But she didn't have to make it quite so clear. I pinned a smile into place. I seek Maestro Marco Santini. He is Maestro de-, de Cucina here. You're not the only one seeking him. He owe you money. He had to pay the last one in spices, and Madonna Adriana wasn't happy. He's my cousin. All true so far, though anything else I told her would likely be lies. Well, he's not here. Madonna Adriana's son is to be married, and Madonna Adriana palmed the feast off on that cardinal cousin of hers, Maestro Santini. He'll be at the cardinal's palazzo now, with the other servants making preparations. Dio, the serving woman muttered. Let him be there. Where? I felt my smile slipping. I'd crossed half the city already in two tight second-hand shoes. My feet hurt. "'and sweat collected between my shoulder blades, "'because a late May morning in Rome "'was far hotter than it had any right to be. "'And if this stupid woman kept blocking my way, "'I'd cut off her thumbs and fry them in good olive oil "'with a little garlic and make her eat them. "'It's very important that I find him, Signora.' "'She set me on my way with a grudging set of directions, "'so I spared her thumbs and plunged back "'into the chaos that was Rome. "'At any other time I would have gaped at the noise, "'the crush, the din,' so different from the silent waterways I'd always called home, but life for me had narrowed. Carts rumbled past me on one side, swaggering young bravos in party-colored doublets shouldered past on the other, sharp-eyed servant girls counted coins to wheedling vendors, and stray dogs sniffed my skirts as I passed. But I saw none of it. I plowed through the crowds as if blind, walking a tunnel of noise and color I'd followed south all the way from Venice to Rome, a terror-laced tunnel with Marco at the end of it, A cousin I hadn't seen in five years, who had somehow become my only hope for survival. And now, please join me in welcoming Kate Quinn. Kate, you have the distinction of being my very first interview for the New Books in Historical Fiction, I'm really, really excited uh, that you're willing to let me experiment on you, and it is turning out to be quite an experiment, after all. Um... Because I had such a great time reading The Serpent and the Pearl, and also its sequel, which is The Lion and the Rose. And uh, I know our usual host, C.P. Leslie, likes to start off by learning a little bit about the writers we feature. So tell us when you first became interested in writing and how you got started.
1: Uh, I really can't remember a time when I wasn't making up stories in my head. And... I was always interested in the past because my mother had a degree in ancient and medieval history. So instead of Disney Channel, I was watching I, Claudius, and instead of Three Little Pigs and Cinderella as bedtime stories, I was getting Alexander and the Gordian Knot and uh, Julius Caesar Crossing the Rubicon. So right from the beginning, my imagination was really fixed in the past. And I ended up writing my first book when I was 10, and it was this absolutely God-awful, 121 pages, about a medieval Irish girl accused of witchcraft, and my version of Ireland back then had snakes in it, because I wasn't too keen on historical research when I was 10. <laughs> and I uh, think that book is long under the bed and will hopefully never come back to haunt me, but I've never been stopped writing ever since. Oh,
0: man. I don't know. It sounds pretty awesome. I'd like to read it. <laughs> the oh, Snakes God. of oh, Ireland. Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you were 10, you know. So, in addition to your two-part series about the Borgias, you have three other novels out currently. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong on that. You've got Empress of Rome, Daughters of Rome, and Mistress of the Seven Hills. And um, I think I'm sensing a little bit of a theme here. (laughs) So, aside from your early history with I, Claudius, what is it about Rome that draws you back again and again as the setting for your stories?
1: (laughs) Uh, actually, it really was England that was my first love. I had Tudormania, Mania, and Elizabeth I was my idol, but Ancient Rome really did fascinate me, too, and it just happened to be the setting for the first book that I, I ended up publishing, but... The fun about modern-day Rome is that it really has this tripartite past, because in the ruins you can see the ancient world, and then in the art museums and all the artwork in general you see the Renaissance, and then you get the religious side in the presence of the Vatican. So when I jumped back to the Renaissance, I really enjoyed getting to delve into the other two sides of the city, which I didn't when it was strictly set in the ancient world. I love Rome, I'd kill to go back.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I've never been there, but I would absolutely love to go. There's just so much history and art there. It'd be awesome to see. Yeah, I went
1: when I was in high school, and I'd love to go back. I'm hopefully I can
0: this year. We'll see. Oh, awesome. I hope you get to. So let's talk a little bit okay, about... Yeah, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about The Serpent and the Pearl. This book follows the lives of three very different people who would seem to have no real reason to become friends. But all of them get drawn, kind of against their will, into this web of politics. And then at the center center of that web, of course, sits Rodrigo Borgia, the man who one day becomes Pope Alexander the Sixth. I was really taken by the variety of your three main characters. And of course, it wasn't surprising to find Julia Farnese as a main one of the first, the, one of the primary characters in the book, since she was Borgia's most famous mistress. I guess I mean, he had a few others, but she's kind of the one everyone remembers now. Um, but joining Julia are these two very unusual characters who also get a share of the narrative perspective. So you have Leonello, this very cynical, knife-wielding dwarf, and Carmelina, who's a woman who really just wants to be left alone in the kitchen. What was it about the Borgia story that made you want to tell it from the perspectives of these other characters, instead of maybe a more obvious choice, like maybe Lucrezia Borgia or somebody who had sort of more political power and more access to high society?
1: Well, I picked Julia Farnese because she was a real historical figure, and she had a front-run seat to all the Borgia shenanigans, which makes her a perfect narrator. But she hadn't really starred in a book of her own yet. She just turned up as a minor figure in a whole lot of other Borgia-centric books. And the trouble with more famous characters like Lucrezia Borgia is that rings have already been written from their eyes, and I'd really rather go with somebody who is a little less done to death. And as far as the other two characters... always love winding fictional characters in with the historical and that's partly just to keep the readers on their toes because you could go to Wikipedia and find out what happened to Julia Farnese but there's no way to know what will happen to Leonello and Carmelina as you read. And then also the idea too was that Julia as an upper class woman in the Renaissance leads a much more sheltered life. Really the women did they didn't go anywhere. They went to church and then they went back home. <laughs> yeah. It's a very insular world for a book to take place in. So since I added Carmelina as a working woman and then Leonello as a man of outsider status, that let me open up the world of the book from just inside the Vatican and the palace, you know. I could have scenes downstairs among the servants. I could have scenes out in the streets with the thugs, you know, taverns, palaces, churches. It gave me a real cross section of the Renaissance to look at, which is why I picked those three.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Good thinking, too. Good planning ahead.
1: (laughs) So, Well, a lot of historical fiction, you know, if you're only looking at the palaces and the queens, you know, it's like you get a very insular world, and I like opening it up a little bit
0: more. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about Carmelina for a little bit. I said earlier that I, quote, read the books, but that's not actually accurate. I, I really listen to them um, as audiobook productions, which are absolutely fantastic, by the way. And every time Carmelina's point of view took the reins, I knew I had to brace myself because I was about to get very, very hungry. <laughs> You must have done some <laughs> yeah, you must have done some crazy research into historically accurate cooking in order to write carmelina 's parts of the story because that woman is so into food she made some of the most creative food based metaphors and similes i 've ever read. Did you have to go to any special lengths to learn about recipes from Renaissance Rome. <laughs>
1: Well, I got most of my recipes from a fabulous Renaissance-era cookbook written by Bartolomeo Scappi, who ended up being the personal chef of two popes later in the 1500s. And he wrote this massive compendium that detailed not just his recipes, but the ins and outs of what a cook's life was like during that time. Now, we don't know anything about Bartolomeo's early life, and I immediately wondered who trained him, because even today when you listen to these Michelin-starred chefs, and they tend to be men, but if you ask them who they learned to cook from, it's always mom, or it's grandma, or it's Tante Jeanette, or something like that, so I looked at the greatest cook of the Renaissance, who wrote this book, which is still in print, and I thought, I really bet he was trained by a woman, so I had the young Bartolomeo in the book as an apprentice in the kitchens, and I have Carmelina as the woman who teaches him everything he knows. So that was- part of the inspiration for her. And then also, character-wise, she is based on my husband's Sicilian grandmother, (laughs) who is now in her 80s, but who is an absolutely superb cook and very fiery. She would absolutely threaten to fry your ears in oil and make you eat them if you committed a sin in her kitchen, like, say, using sauce out of a jar.
0: I love that. I wondered if Bartolomeo was based on a real character, if he was one who you made up. So he appears in, in the book as well.
1: Yes, we don't know anything about his early years, really, or even when he was born. I stretched his birth, what his probable birth date was, a little bit. But we definitely know he was a real person, and we know that he went on to a great, great career. But all the rest, almost all the recipes are right from his book.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So did he actually invent potato chips then?
1: No, he did not. That was my own invention. Ah! He does not scene where he has... He does, he does not have too much to do with potatoes in his book, but I couldn't resist.
0: I, I, I can't resist potato world. chips myself. Yeah, I no, that was wonderful. I was like, ah, oh, it's the secret origins of potato chips. <laughs> it was great. <laughs>
1: well, actually, as a promo, um, I got together with a lot of different food bloggers who recreated recipes out of the books, and they did some fantastic work there. If you ever want to do a Renaissance uh, feat, you can get it. you can get it right from them. I had some of the ones like the In at the Crossroads bloggers, oh yeah, blogging out of the Game of Thrones, they they ended up doing a couple of dishes out of here too, and so yes, yeah, somebody did do the potato chips.
0: Oh, that's amazing! That's great. I love In at the Crossroads. I want to try all their recipes. <laughs> so, oh, yes, I love their work. Yeah. <laughs> so, as I mentioned in the intro, everybody in the Serpent and the Pearl is kind of keeping some sort of secret from somebody else. So, without spoiling the big reveal, what can you tell us about Carmelina's secret?
1: Uh, well, she carries a dried up saint's hand in her pocket for luck. And before you think that is really, really gross, dried up pieces of dead saint were actually very popular religious relics in the Renaissance, so it wasn't that uncommon. And Carmelina happens to carry the hand of Saint Martha, who is the patron saint of cooks everywhere.
0: Now, how she came by that hand, though, is a very dangerous business, and that's where the secret lies. Aha. So, Carmelina really fascinated me, because she has this very, um, like, earthy philosophy about life that runs very counter to what we think about when we consider women in the Renaissance world, like you were mentioning, you know, they go to church and they go home. She doesn't do the ultra-modest sort of self-denial thing, She's not exactly virtuous in the way women were expected to be virtuous, and she doesn't browbeat herself for not being, you know, the ideal Renaissance woman either. But she's not ostentatious. She's not flaunting her kind of unwomanliness or taking any special pride in it. She's just trying to live her life in the way that feels right and natural to her. One moment that really struck me in the book is when Julia tells Carmelina in this sort of -of matter-of-fact way, well, a woman can be one of three things, a wife, a nun, or a whore. And once you've made up your mind, which you are, there's no going back. But Carmelina doesn't really agree with that. She feels that there's there are these spectrums of grey in between all that black and white where she can kind of live out her life in peace and be who she wants to be. And yet, early on in the book, she's forced to take control of a wealthy woman's kitchens without any pay because a proper woman in that time would not work for pay. So she has this complex philosophy and trusts her own self, yet she's still so constrained by society. Tell us a little bit about some of the research you did about women's rights and roles in Renaissance Italy while you were developing Car- Carmelina as a character?
1: Well, the wife, nun, or whore idea was those were three of the major careers that women were expected to take in the Renaissance. But that trilogy does not really allow for working women. And that's another reason why I wanted a working woman as a heroine and not just, you know, a noble woman in a silk dress. Now, men of the Renaissance, you know, they made it hard for women to make a living in any trade. Usually they couldn't enter guilds for training the way that men could. So the best you could hope for was informal training and then maybe to help out in the shop or the trade that your father or your husband had. But cooks weren't actually trained in formal guilds in the Renaissance. So I saw an opportunity to have something different for Carmelina. I made her the daughter of a cook, so she learned her skills from her father's knee and therefore medical. And even if she isn't paid the way a man would be, she those skills do let her carve out a place in the world for herself. Now, everywhere in history, you will see women making those kinds of compromises. It just requires a woman who has the common sense and the practicality to look past the priests and the men who are telling you what you can't do and find a way to do it anyway. And it's not fair, of course, that she can't just do the calling that she is so obviously fit for, but she doesn't have time to complain about her situation, why it's monumentally unfair, and she doesn't even have time to worry that she's not living up to the strict standards of virtue that the priests also loved to lay down for the women at the time. She's just too busy running a kitchen and making a living. And since she has such a passion for cooking and for food, she'll make those sacrifices just so she can get to keep doing what she wants. And that was another important thing, I thought, with her character. Is I love being able to give a historical heroine a real passion that isn't just her love life. Because, you know, again, when so many heroines in H.F. are queens or princesses or royal mistresses, you know, they're not working women. So And they don't have access to too many hobbies. So Carmelina got to be different.
0: Yeah, I really like that about her. And I'll also say this for Carmelina, I will never look at a lime the same way again in my life. Three words, renaissance, birth control. (laughs) If you want to know what we're talking about with regards to limes, you'll have to read The Serpent and the Pearl. (laughs) So... (laughs) Carmelina becomes good friends with Julia Farnese, and Julia is one of those big marquee names, like we talked about earlier, who just kind of can't be left out of any depiction of the Borgias, whether it's a book or a TV show or anything else. Tell us a little bit about the real Julia. What do we know about her?
1: Well, so we do know she was a famous beauty with incredible floral hair. We have some of the letters that the Pope wrote to her, which prove how utterly besotted he was. And we also know that unlike a lot of people in the Borge at Orbis, she escaped their drama and their violence and lived out a long, happy, wealthy life afterwards. So, and that's no small feat. So that says to me that she had some brains under all the hair.
0: Oh, definitely. And I think there's this tendency in Borgia fiction to make Julia a a little wily, kind of a bit of a schemer or social climber. And sometimes she's been depicted as a rather unpleasant person who kind of only gets by on her looks and doesn't really have much else to offer the world. But at first, when I first started reading The Serpent and the Pearl, I was a little bit afraid you'd take sort of that similar tack with Julia but I have to say, I fell in love with her. She is so nice in your book. She's not only <laughs> yeah, she's not only a very moral, kind person who will make tremendous sacrifices to help the people she cares for, but she's also, like you said, very intelligent. She definitely has brains under all of her hair. And she has this habit of introspection and forward thinking that really serve her very well over the course of both books. And yeah, she also has this great capacity for fun too, and enjoys beauty. I mean, she just was somebody I wanted to hang out with in real life. <laughs> so you said that that we uh, we do have um, these these historical documents that sort of prove that she was able to escape the orbit and get away from there. So you really based her your depiction of her on your interpretation of real historical facts and and not just kind of like, I'm gonna make her nice just just to go against the grain.
1: Well, I found one really interesting fragment of a letter that is attributed to her. Now, some attribute it to Lucretia Borgia, but at least one source said it was Julia. And she and the Pope's daughter were out and about, and she was writing somebody a letter about how they were out buying new dresses. And she has a line in there where she says, we ransacked Florence for brocade, and everybody was amazed. <laughs> and that really hit me as just the kind of girl talk that we have with our own girlfriends. It sounds fun. It sounds funny. It sounds bubbly and sweet. And I suddenly had an image of a much nicer, happier, sweeter character than the usual kind of pretty schemer who's usually depicted. So I think it could—you could you could say it kind of came from lines like that that I found kind of around the edges of the big history.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it worked so well for her, like I said. I mean, you just make such a connection with her as a reader, you can't help but really like her a lot and just want her to succeed at whatever it is that she wants. So it's no spoiler... Yeah. (laughs) It's no spoiler to tell listeners that Julia, who's initially very excited about her marriage to this very handsome young man named Orsino Orsini, she soon finds out that she's actually been involved in a plot to further the Orsini family's fortunes, and she will accomplish this plot or uh, I should say she will accomplish this task by becoming the mistress of Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia. Just surprise, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> this, is, this is your new fate. And that all happens very early in the book, so it's not a big spoiler. And it kicks off a series of conflicts over the course of... Of, of both of your Borgia novels, really, how much of that was taken from history and how much did you invent, if any? So did the real Orsino know that his marriage would be a sham to cover up for, you know, Rodrigo Borgia's lust for this woman? Or did the real Julia knowingly cuckold and unsuspecting Orsino, do we know
1: well, all we know for certain is that at some point after Julia's marriage and before Rodrigo Borgia became Pope, she became his mistress. I did condense the time frame down there because I didn't want to have to kill three years. Uh, she actually married when she was 15 and Orsino was 16. i hurried things up a little bit because I wanted to get right to the papal election. But what, we don't really know what the setup was there. Now, it has the smell of a setup to me because... Julia's husband was a distant cousin to Rodrigo Borgia, and he was given all kinds of compensations. And Rodrigo actually had a habit with his previous mistresses of providing them with husbands who would, for the sake of surface propriety look the other way. Well, their wives carried on with him. Now, whether Julia's family or even Julia herself actually were complicit in that setup from the get-go, we don't know. But the interesting thing is that Julia's husband was not very happy with the situation, unlike the husbands of previous mistresses. Now, he might have been in the dark about the arrangement until it was sprung on him, or maybe he took one look at his bride and really regretted what he was giving up. But he was always pleading to get her back, and Julia seems to have had a soft spot for him that indicates she felt sorry for his predicament. Now, she had a daughter a few years later who was actually born with her husband's name and not with the Borgia name, which does indicate that she and her husband might have had some kind of physical relationship, whether they were supposed to or not. And the Pope had an absolute fit of rage whenever Julia threatened to return to her husband or even just go visit him. So there were definitely a lot of complicated feelings flying around in this
0: situation. Wow, fascinating. It's such a such a soap opera. <laughs> <clears throat> Oh, it really is. <laughs> yeah. So, in thinking about Julia, it strikes me that your depiction of Rodrigo Borgia is also a little bit different from kind of the canon of Borgia fiction. Your Rodrigo is definitely very clever and full of ambition, you know, as is appropriate, but he's also so tender and sweet with Julia. He seems to just genuinely love her and not just to lust after her. And he also adores his family so much that he becomes kind of naive about them and doesn't really see what's actually going on. And again, I wonder how much of that is supported by direct historical evidence. I know you mentioned a letter where he seems to be very in love with her. And then how much was your interpretation of, of Rodrigo Borgia's character?
1: Well, that came from I had the difficulty of trying to make Julia and Rodrigo's relationship sympathetic. Because there's forty one year age difference
0: between them. Yeah, wow. And
1: if I was gonna make her just a spiteful gold digger, you know, who's gonna hop into bed with a rich man for money, then that wouldn't have been a problem, but I wanted it to be sympathetic to some degree because she is a sweet girl. And I had to motivate her. And fortunately, direct accounts from the time said that even if we can see from his portraits, Rodrigo Borgia was not quite as lean and handsome as say Jeremy Irons plays him in the showtime series. <laughs> but he is definitely described by his peers and by more than one as he had a huge amount of charm and charisma, and women were all over him. They were over all over him like catnip when he was younger and when he was older. Wow! So that helped shape my version of Rodrigo Borgia as being. A real sensualist who loves women, who understands women, who appreciates everything about women—from their minds to their bodies to the you know whatever unique thing makes each one beautiful—and is fundamentally a guy who knows how to make a woman happy. And that's the kind of man I thought Julia could plausibly fall in love love with, even if he was that much older than she was. Now, as far as his love for his family, that is even more backed up by fiction by excuse me by history because he was notoriously Indulgent and loving to his children. He had no shame in claiming them as his. Now chastity began, which is actually quite a scandal at the time because a lot of popes had illegitimate children, but generally you tried to pass them off as, at least on the surface, as these are my nieces and nephews. Rodrigo Borg didn't bother with that. He claimed them as his, he gave them his name, and Unfortunately, that love that he had to them really had a dark side because it really made him blind to anything they did wrong. He would shower them with presence and attention, and then he would make excuses for anything that they did to mess up, whether it was something as little as incompetence or something as really serious as rape or murder. They could do no wrong in his eyes, and that really led him down the path to hell as far as good intentions went.
0: Wow, yeah, really interesting person from... from you know Renaissance history. I mean, you don't typically think of you don't typically think of him. I think as as this loving, doting father. I mean, everyone tends to think of Rodrigo as you know the schemer who just kind of did everything he could to further his okay. own family's interests. But he seems like like a nice old grandpa.
1: You know? Yeah, he was in a lot of ways, and he was certainly he was the classic doting father who well, whose children were the apple of his eye, and they can do no wrong in his eyes, and. It really was, and it, it has its nice side, but it really led him to some of his worst actions.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, the third main character in The Serpent and the Pearl is also my favorite, and I expect you probably hear that a lot. Leonello <laughs> is a, a dwarf whom we first meet gambling with a bunch of drunks. And he's winning very handily. He's extremely sharp witted, very cynical to the point of bitterness. And he comes to find out through tragic circumstances that he also has a bit of a penchant for solving crimes. So while I was fangirling over The Serpent and the Pearl on Goodreads, I found a post, or maybe it was a comment on a review or something, where you mentioned that you'd been thinking about this character and working on his story ever since high school. So what is it about Leonello that made him so fascinating to you over the years, even before you really kind of sat down to write The Serpent and the Pearl?
1: Well, I really wanted to have a hero, a dwarf, who was a real capital-age hero, because a lot of times in dwarves in historical fiction get related to the sidekick roles, you know, the same kind of roles they had to play in real life in the Renaissance, where they so often got stuck as jugglers, jesters, pages, servants, really kind of as pets. Now, there are some great examples of dwarves in fiction. Sarah Dunant has In the Company of the Corazon, which has a wonderful dwarf narrator, but even so, he is really telling his friend's story more than he's telling his own. And then, you know, everybody's favorite dwarf on Game of Thrones is Tyrion Lannister. Of
0: course, yes. But
1: he's still part of an ensemble cast. You know, he is the foil, he's the traditional Paul Dark and Handsome types, you know, the heroes like Jon Snow and Robb Stark. I really wanted to have a dwarf character in a book who gets to carry, who is the one and only hero, you know, and he gets the standard hero treatment. He gets to have his own story, he pursues his own goals, he... But among his enemies, he moves and he gets the girl, even if she's a lot taller than he is, and along the way, he doesn't have to do one single solitary bit of, you know, cliche dwarf activity, like juggle or tumble or be anybody's clown. I really thought a dwarf deserved a real hero's journey, and there's no reason he couldn't have one, just because he was afflicted with dwarfism. Well,
0: I think you definitely succeeded. Leonello is awesome, and I think I even developed a little bit of a crush on him, so... (laughs) So well, well done. I've
1: heard that the narrator <laughs> for the audiobook was actually a English character actor who starred in the, co in the Borges. Oh. Actually, um, has a wonderful, wonderful, very sexy voice. Oh, yeah, so that's... I'm sure I, I can understand a
0: crush. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that probably had something to do with it. He is an excellent, excellent voice actor. <laughs> so, Leonello gets caught up in this obsessive drive to figure out who's killing women throughout Rome. And it's obvious that it's got to be the same person who's responsible for all these murders because the crime scenes are so distinctive and so alike. And eventually, his quest to find this killer kind of sucks him into the Borgia court. Now, various members of the Borgia family are still, many hundreds of years later, suspected of all kinds of murders. I don't know if they actually did them or not. Are the murders in your book, specifically, that Leonello struggles to solve based on any sort of historical fact, or did you make up these specific murders for the book?
1: Uh, The string of murders that Leonello tries to solve are all made up. But what I did base, in fact, is that... um, Okay, how can I put this without there being a major (laughs) spoiler? Uh... There is a notorious murder of a powerful person who is very close to the Borgia family. And this remains one of the great unsolved mysteries in the Renaissance. Who killed this person and why? And a lot of scholars have speculated about who might have done it. And usually the credit goes to somebody of the same noble birth or in the same family, and the motives are assumed to be political. And with important murders, I always wonder, why is it that somebody... Politically important can be, can't be killed by perhaps somebody who is relatively unimportant, but who has a really burning personal reason. And what could motivate a powerless person to take a risk like that? And the string of female murders was my answer. because That provided motivation for Leonello to, in the end, be motivated to go toe-to-toe with somebody who is very dangerous and very powerful and to risk everything.
0: It's It's a really great scene, too, when that big conflict finally happens. I was definitely on the edge of my car seat as I drove around, listening to this audiobook, <laughs> trying not to crash into things because I was yeah. getting way too involved in it. So, soon... Yeah, the,
1: uh, details of the, the details of that particular crime, which involve a person who is uh, apparently tortured with knives and then tossed into a river, those are all completely drawn from the, sort of like, the taste crime of the time. So I had to sort of Write the book around what we knew about the murder scene. That was interesting.
0: Aha, well, that's really cool. I like that. Soon, Leonello ends up taking a job as a bodyguard to Julia Farnese, and all three of your narrators are now entrenched in the same political dangers. So they're three people with dramatically different personalities, but they reach a point where their safety and their lives depend on working together and sacrificing for one another. And I really love the dynamic between all three of these characters. Was it hard for you to make them fit together in this complex sort of way, or did they kind of take on lives of their own and write themselves?
1: They really did take on a life of their own. Uh, They aren't all friends in quite the same way. You know, Julia is lovable and easygoing, and she makes friends with everyone. And I think another reason for her to plausibly make friends with her servants is that as a woman of loose reputation, she is, does not have the opportunity to make friends of her own class, which motivated her in my mind so that she is probably a little chummier with, you know, the lower class other narrators here than she would be in, probably in real life but she is lovable and easygoing. she makes friends with everyone and Carmelina though is realistic that there is a barrier of rank between them and she said she also has so many secrets she has to be careful about who she trusts uh, Leonello now has huge emotional barriers that make him very hesitant to get close to people but because he's a dwarf he has a real understanding of what it's like to be powerless and to be an underdog and that gives him a much closer understanding of women than a lot of men of his era had I actually thought of that with the current, like the hashtag, Yes All Women. You find women posting things like, this is the kind of thing that I go through, having to go through, walk down a dark street and look behind me every other step to make sure someone's not sneaking up on me. Leonella would understand that on a visceral level because as a dwarf, that is also exactly what he goes through every day. And that's why, in the end, women are the best friends that he has. So he understands and sympathizes with the two women even when he's quarreling with them.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, The Serpent and the Pearl ends with some secrets revealed and one or two feeling even itchier for the reader, and you just have to go on and read the sequel, The Lion and the Rose, which, after more danger and intrigue, finally brings the stories of all three of these fantastic characters to a truly wonderful and very moving ending. I loved it. Can you tell us anything about... (laughs) I did. You saw my post on Goodreads. (laughs) Can you... (laughs) I was, I was tickled. <laughs> Can you tell us anything about your next release?
1: I'm going back to ancient Rome for my sixth book. It's the conclusion in my Empress of Rome series, and that one is called Lady of the Eternal City. And that takes place during the reign of the ever-traveling Emperor Hadrian, who you might have heard of. He is the guy who took one look north into Scotland, said very sensibly, "Hell no," and built a great big wall.
0: <laughs> Wise move. <laughs> Very wise Well that sounds like it's it sounds like it's going to be really good. I'm excited to, to read that one too. Can you tell us at all about A Day of Fire or is that still hush hush? And if it is, I can edit that out of this audio.
1: Oh no, not at all. Um one of the more fun projects I've started on is a collaboration, which is sort of a novel in six parts, which I am writing co writing with five different other authors of historical fiction, and they are Ben Kane, who writes the Forgotten Legion series and the Spartacus duology, and uh, Stephanie Dre, who has the trilogy on Cleopatra's daughter Selene. Vicki Alvier Schechter, who writes Curses and Smoke and Cleopatra's Moon, which are which are YA historical fiction, and Sophie Perno who is the author of The Sister Queens, and for our last one, we have um, E. Knight, who is a real indie phenom, who just had her first couple of Tudor-based historical fiction published to a whole lot of acclaim. So the five, of, or the uh, six of us, rather, are getting together to write interlocked stories based around the Pompeii eruption, and the whole can be read A to Z but every story should stand alone as well we're actually just editing those now it's been
0: a lot of fun oh how exciting do you guys know when that might be released or is it still kind of up in the air
1: uh, we're hoping to have a have a release for that at the end of this year uh, November or December
0: oh so we're cool right
1: now for somewhere around November 1st
0: great I'll keep my fingers crossed I really want to read that it sounds great well <laughs> thank you so much for joining us Kate it was really great talking to you about the serpent and the pearl
1: Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a
0: delight. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm Libby Hawker, and I've been talking to Kate Quinn, author of The Serpent and the Pearl. You can find more about Kate on her website, katequinnauthor.com, and that's Quinn with two N's. Like us on Facebook. You can search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter, at Fit. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. On my blog at LibbyHawker.com, and that's Libby with an I-E, not a Y, I'll upload an expanded post about my interview with Kate, and I also blog there about historical fiction in general, my favorite tidbits of history, and the ever-changing publishing industry. You can find my social media links and more information about my books on my website as well. New Books Network is run by volunteers. If you enjoyed the interview you just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to any page at newbooksnetwork.com and clicking on the link to shop at amazon.com or by shopping for books at the new University Press Bookstore, which is universitypressbookstore.com. Yes, it does include historical fiction. This is Libby Hawker for New Books in Historical Fiction. Thanks again and have a great day.